to another good week, guys. Yeah. And here we go. Ka-chink, ka-chink, ka-chink. A very good opportunity to revisit a subject that can never be revisited enough. An oldie but a goodie. Yeah. It's an anatomy lesson. Anatomy lesson, and that's mm-hmm. the anatomy of a false allegation. This is important because recently we've had a number of people come forward and say, you guys are just perpetuating rapists. How dare you defend rapists when you are a defense lawyer and you specialize in sexual assault cases that were somehow uh, perpetuating rape myths? Tell, tell people what's a rape myth. Well, this is this is one of the problems is that the, the list keeps growing. Okay. Right? Top yeah. 10, yeah. So um, the original rape myths mm-hmm. are called the twin myths. Okay. It's good to review the myths. It's good to review because people don't remember yeah. sometimes. And uh, so the, the twin myths is actually the same thing for two different purposes. You can't say that because somebody was sexually active in the past that they're more likely to have consented or that they're less worthy of belief. Essentially, you're mm-hmm. saying, you know, you shouldn't believe them because they're a slut. Who believes, you know, somebody mm-hmm. who's some woman who goes around spreading her legs? You know what I mean? Just to put it in the most vulgar terms. And that's kind of, you know, that's when it was... pretty vulgar. That's pretty vulgar, yeah. <laughs> but apt. But apt. Because that's kind of the thing that, you know, there was some of that going on in court, mm-hmm. right? There was in... in, in We're talking people about... People spreading their legs. Time quite a long time yeah. ago. And then that was a horrible yeah. misconception right. that only perpetuated myths and stereotypes. The Absolutely one, true. Yeah. The one you're more likely to come across, and, and sometimes accidentally, is to say that just because somebody had consented to sex mm-hmm. a day before or a week before or a year before with the same person with yeah. the same person that they're more likely to have said yes because they're already you know engaged in some sort of sexual relationship mm-hmm. so that one, or even married yeah right. or married yeah. yeah so so that one is something you're more likely to come across although usually accidentally mm-hmm. that they right. don't realize it so but then the list has been expanded um some of them i think are quite relevant like uh the doctrine of recent complaint right if somebody doesn't report right away well you know, mm-hmm. it didn't really happen because he would he would just keep their mouth shut for a year, two years, ten years, twenty years, twenty years, thirty, thirty years, forty. Sometimes we've seen, yeah. right? And uh, so, uh, and then also ideas about how a real victim would behave. That, that they, they would still yell. spend time with the abuser. They would still seek them out. Yeah, and and why didn't you fight back? Right. Yeah, well, that's bullshit. Yeah, so, that's yeah. Yeah, yeah. that one's kind of stale. Yeah. Yeah. But there, but you know, there are lots of legitimate lines of cross examination and and defense points to be made that could sound like that. But you have to be very careful to articulate what it is that you're questioning. And and the important point is, it must be grounded in evidence about those particular people and what they claim. So, if, so if uh, translate that. So if a complainant says, "I was yelling and screaming." Right, and then there's evidence that they weren't yelling and screaming. Mm-hmm. So there are people nearby who heard absolutely nothing. Well, you're not saying they should have yelled and screamed. You're challenging the fact that they said they did. Right. Well, that's different. Yeah, of course. Right? Or if a person, you know, who's a complainant says, you know, I'm the type of person who, you know, I stand up for my rights. I, I, I'm, I'm very uh, aggressive about my rights. You know, I would never let something like this happen. And they don't complain about it for two years mm-hmm. until something happens. Then you can, you know, go after them about. The timing of the allegation, the context of it. What was the other? I'm just information laughing. We've also had ones. There's like people who actually literally work for victim services types services, mm-hmm. and then said they didn't know how to how to report. <laughs> we have, oddly enough, yeah, where complainants have worked for victim services and worked within that and advised people 
and then actually come to court and say, I didn't know this was a crime. <laughs> I didn't know I could report it. Oh, boy. And that's when you can go after them, right? right? Yeah. But 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 the myths have been expanded more. Right. And the we, most know, egregious, we know who's doing that. The most egregious. The myth mm-hmm. that women lie about rape. Yeah, and we've we've talked about this before, and I've come under fire when I've said, you know, publicly that um, we were successful in establishing that something was a false allegation, and then I get this horrible barrage of of tweets or comments or but, X's. But 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 you know, I'm I really am coming to the conclusion that there's a strong segment that's under the delusional belief that there are no such thing as false accusations, and I had this really weird exchange because one of the latest things is personal injury firms have drum, jumped on this bandwagon to sue mm-hmm. um, people and they advertise, have you been a victim of sexual violence? That's how Nygaard started out, civil firms well, in the States. That, that's correct. And, 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 and in the United States, it's very favorable to start a complaint in the civil courts seeking damages and then it may or may not migrate to the criminal system. We haven't quite seen that in Canada, but I have to tell you, <laughs> there there's a lot of advertising encouraging victims, uh, alleged victims of sexual assault to come forward and they will sue. And within that, there's been some exchanges I've had where I think there's this delusional belief that, um, that there is no such thing as a false accusation. And I found it recently to be very scary because I've started to pay more attention. I'm not trying to, look, everybody has a right to practice law and to represent people who they who on a reasonable basis, their, their rights have been aggrieved. I'm not saying that. What I'm worried about is that it becomes such an industry that it perpetuates what I consider to be a false narrative. There are legitimate allegations of sexual violence. Absolutely. There are legitimate false accusations that we have proven time after time after time. And we have proven now that there's a male who suffered a complex trauma disorder as a result of being coercively controlled and emotionally and psychologically abused by the complainant who alleged sexual assault. We've proven this. And I would expect more balance from our profession and from others in, 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 in the therapeutic industry and et cetera. And it's not, that, it's not happening that way. And we've now seen through other episodes the incredible impact that therapists can have in re-altering and relabeling relationships and opinions of it and what actually happened that I'm worried about it becoming an industry and it leading to uh, you know, false civil claims and, and possibly into the criminal courts and having false accusations leading to false wrongful, or, or to wrongful convictions. It, it's, it's, it's really hit a point where it's bothered me tremendously. Explain the onus in civil courts so people understand why it's easier. I'm going to leave that to you. I'm talking too much. No, you're not. Yeah, yeah. Michael, please take it away. Ties a skew, by the way. I'm an askew type of guy. I know that. We talked about this. Please tell us. Civil court, balance of probabilities. Criminal court, beyond a reasonable doubt. What, is, what does a balance of probability mean? Eh, it means... On balance. On balance, yeah. 52%. It's more likely yeah. to be true than not. Yeah, more right. likely to be true like, than it's not. It's like scoring 52%, right. right? Something like that. So, you know, a lawsuit 
is expensive for the person who's defending it because you have to hire a lawyer. Uh, the defense lawyer on the civil lawsuit is not going to be doing it on a contingency basis. The the civil firm who's suing will be doing it on a contingency right. basis. Quite so often, the complainant yeah. does not have to fork over money. Which is a dangerous, attractive thing. 100%. And so you've got the financial consequences. In the civil process, you have discovery where you have to attend in front of an examiner and people get examined. That's expensive. Pay for transcripts. Pay for transcripts pay for the disclosure and then it may have to go to trial and, and so discovery process is a lot lengthier than pretrial applications right. yeah. a discovery is literally in a, after all the documents have been disclosed or whatever has been disclosed and it's a different regime than criminal mm -hmm. you know you have to attend and maybe get examined by the other side it can become quite costly and time consuming and so there's there's an issue with respect to being able to afford that. And then if you do go to trial, the threshold is simply, is it more than likely that this happened? 52%. And in that sphere, you may be able to get away with junk science and, and, and call therapists. Oh, God, yeah. And, you know, I got to tell you what pissed me off most when I watched the end of the Nygaard case. And I'm not, the ruling is the ruling. I'm not commenting on the evidence. Jury made their decision. But, you know, the therapist actually was on on camera going, yes, we did it, we did it, and then actually was interviewed. And I have no problem with therapists supporting victims and giving them the emotional and psychological assistance they require. I'm concerned about the being so invested in it. The advocacy. Oh, yeah. That you start to become an advocate. Mm -hmm. That's what bothers me, that we are crossing lines that shouldn't be crossed to protect the integrity of evidence and this process. I think that's why this has crystallized for me more than ever now. And it, it it's really concerning me that there's this delusion that there's no such thing. Mm -hmm. Well, one of the things that, that is actually kind of one of the forbidden questions or one of the you know, improper suggestions uh, in a criminal trial is that no person who's lying about it would put themselves through the oh, rigors expose themselves to the process to, uh, yeah. you know enduring a trial process and being cross-examined and that's improper for for a prosecutor to suggest mm -hmm. that because it's a subtle way of reversing the burden that's of proof right right or the presumption of innocence right and and let's say something else you know when when a trial happens in a criminal case the standard now is for a uh, a complainant to testify by closed circuit TV. So you see these CCTV applications. Don't get me started. Well, let's get you started okay. because I'm opposing all of them, yes. except when it involves children. children right. So we have one case just went on where the person was an adult and you won the application and we fought it out and you won the application because it was merely just saying, you know, I'd be uncomfortable and... It, 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 there there's really nothing there. there. There's yeah. nothing, that, which is straight. No, it's it's a study in contrast. I had one in, in a London case where the complainant uh, walked into the courthouse, saw my guy, my client. They exchanged glances, and then she was now fearful of him. He just looked. She just looked at him. That was it. That was it. CCT application was granted there. Yeah. So that's insanity. That's and, insanity. And I, and it's I have crazy. This, two other cases coming up where both complainants are adults mm -hmm. who have careers and lives and have done stuff and have been under far more stress than right. testifying in a courtroom to some extent. And I don't care what you say. It's not, you know, that bad to just get up in the stand and tell the truth. But 
the default now is to, to testify right. by CCTV, so we get to cross-examine through a Samsung TV. As nice as the TV may be, right. um, you know, it's still not remotely the same as having somebody in front of you No testify. pun intended. Yeah. But, um, so, but, but that's serious issue. It is, it is. And it also, if, if it's a jury, for example, well, why is the complainant getting this special well, treatment? There'll be, there'll be an instruction to the jury. You, you shouldn't take anything from it. What, what Come the on, f seriously? Right. You have your support dog, you have your VWAP, you have this, you have that, and then you have your client sitting there with you going, oh, well, let's do I, our I, best. I, you know, I, I would want to say to a jury, he's here testifying yeah. right there. Yeah, here live. We don't, just testifying through a Samsung TV. Right. How do you feel convicting him right. without having the person in front well, of him? Well, here's the thing that people forget, too. They're so that. busy feeling sympathy for how hard it must be for right. a complainant. They don't realize how hard it is for an of accused person not. to Let's testify. talk about that for a second. Yeah. It's terrifying. How hard is it? And again, I know I've said this before. Clients have to testify in sexual assault cases. Period. There, there are very rare circumstances. If you blow the Crown's case out through cross-examination, then you may not need to. Rare. 99% of the time in a sexual assault case, you must call your client to testify. That's why we call them he says, she says. Right. But it is vital because otherwise a judge or jury is left with only one side of the story. And the best you can do is argue some inconsistencies, which a judge will say is not that significant. Right. So you're f***ed if you don't right. testify. Right. How hard is it for a person to testify in their own defense? Yeah. <laughs> Well, for a complainant, first? for a complainant, if if they're not believed, there's no consequence. For an accused person, if they're not believed for whatever reason, their demeanor, something about them that the trier of fact doesn't like, or they get confused about something, whatever it is, when they testify, the consequences they could go to jail, and be there for a lengthy amount of time. They get convicted. Oh, right. They become a sex offender. But They'll lose their job. And they go to jail. But nothing happens to a complainant if they're even... It's very rare to have an outright finding that a complainant lied. It does happen. We've yeah. had that happen. But even then. We even had an then, episode on that. The English case. Yeah. Well, nothing happens Very few to cases so where there's prosecutions. So their consequences are very low. Think about what it is when you are not a professional witness. You're blindsided by the allegation. And we see when we're prepping clients, they're sitting there and their hands are shaking. Shaking, yeah. Mm-hmm. Shaking. They can hardly remember their own name sometimes. Right. And you can see them when In they fact, start we had to a testify. Guy his name. <laughs> yeah, right, right. Yeah. And, and, you know, and they get in a the stand, they start to testify, and they're really nervous and they're scared. And you can see it on their faces. Mm -hmm. After a while, people tend to get more comfortable, but some don't. It's terrifying for them. It, because they, 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 they absolutely know that life can be over if they're not believed. And that, just think about that. It's life-altering. And we're dealing with people who are young. They're in university. These are charges coming out of university where, you know, the concept of consent is completely different. It's all blown out of the water. And 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 a, a young kid's life can be f***ing ruined. They can be a straight-A student. They're in a great program. They have a wonderful career ahead of them. Gone. Gone. You know, an accused who has an excellent job. Gone never going to see maybe their child again because of this. All sorts of stuff. The pressure that's on an individual charged with sexual assault is f***ing enormous. Right. And it's so hard. And we have to spend so much time with them trying to help them overcome the emotional trauma, the emotional pressure of testifying. Yeah.
And then you get courts, I'm sorry, you know, sometimes saying, you know, well, I don't quite believe him because, you know, he said, you know, the sky wasn't quite that blue that day. I mean, there's just an uneven scrutiny level. I don't care what anybody says. There is, in some cases, an uneven scrutiny. It's as if the accused has to be perfect, perfect has yeah. to be polite enough, has to be resistant enough, has to be, you know, has to walk that fine balance, <laughs> you know, and that doesn't apply to a complainant's evidence. But another question, aside from uh, why would somebody put themselves, a complainant put themselves through all this if they're lying, another one that you're not um, allowed to ask is uh, asking an accused person, why would she lie? Mm -hmm. We've had that on a few episodes. Yeah. Right. And, and that's important because, I, you know, I think we can't go through this enough. The actual known motives that people have admitted to lying for. This is not, you know, what people think people would, would lie for. But people who've admitted to lying have actually, you know, been asked why they did it. Yes. So we do have a list. And it's important. And that's because, from an academic study. Right. Yeah. Um, and, you know, and, and, and it's important to think about this because sometimes it can be a presumption or a stereotype that a person would lie for a certain reason, but sometimes it's true. Right. Mm -hmm. But did you want to, why can you not ask an accused person, well, why would they lie about it? Well, it's again reversing the onus and putting tons of pressure on the accused. Mm -hmm. It's a horrible question to ask. We know that. But what's one of the things that that our clients say all the time is like they, they're racking their brain all the time trying yeah, to figure yeah. out why this yeah, person is lying. Of course, that's the first thing because during an intake. they don't actually know. They don't know. And Especially if it's children. In those yeah. cases, we get why would those this... Are, those are very difficult. And then, then you've got those concepts of uh, an absence of motive to fabricate or a proven absence of motive. Let's not get into that. That's not right, 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 yeah. That's a separate... But the, top, <laughs> the second top reason why people have said they lied was they don't even know. And I, yeah, no, know, and that's legitimate. I that came out. That enough. Yeah. Mm -hmm. But so, you know, you can take circumstances where you can think of any number of factors where there is, you know, a high conflict divorce mm -hmm. and things are not going the way of one of the parties and all of a sudden they make allegations that two years ago I was sexually assaulted and this and that. Therefore, absolute control in the, uh, in, in the civil system. And I, I have this ongoing right now. Like, as we're talking about an anatomy of, of a false accusation, we have a, a bitter divorce. The individual is alleged to have pushed and shoved and injured his wife on a few occasions. She put in two pictures of injuries and then had taken a belt and hit both his son and daughter with the wife in bed. And that's the allegation against them. He has since been unable to see his children at all. Is in family court. The complainant is claiming more abuse and sole custody and all that. So just think about the motives behind why somebody might lie. Now, the client provides you with a whack of WhatsApp messages between them, including three years of pictures because the person has an illness, lupus, where they have injuries I shouldn't say injuries. The, the the symptoms, the manifestations of the the marks. of the lupus right. are marks that just happen to be strikingly similar to the two pictures which are put out. Just happen to be in the same areas of those pictures. Okay, mm -hmm. so we've got tons of mess uh, pictures going back three years. WhatsApp messaging, where the client 
wants to divorce. The complainant does not. The complainant says the only reason a man and woman should divorce is infidelity. That hasn't happened. We should work it through. And he politely is responding, no, it's not working. We need to separate. We need to do this properly. We're both going to share custody of the children. And then two days later, the complainant goes to the police. Well, we've talked about this. And there are videos right up until the day before of him with the children where they have you can just see the warmness and the birthday party, whatever relationship. Yeah. It's yeah. amazing, right? Well, we've called this the playbook, right? Mm-hmm. But that gets disclosed, and you still get the blowback. Um, it's a lot of information to go through. The complainant is still saying, you know, she's fearful. She's very fearful, fearful for the kid's safety. It's like that's an anatomy of a false accusation, and that's that coupled with everything else. Like we're in this delusional world where people don't have motive and agendas, like. Like, this one is like a perfect example of one. I think the family courts, I mean, it's such a mess in the family courts, but I think the judges, you know, when they're dealing with family court cases, are much more alive to these issues. I don't know. But it is a little, I think it's a little more scary. You mean in the family court or criminal? In the criminal. In criminal court, I think they're not as alive to it. I think it's... it's, I think it's the other way around. Yeah, it is the other way around. I think the criminal judges are much more attuned to it, or at least will give it the benefit of the doubt. Whereas the family court judges will be just gobbling it up because in the family system, you're allowed to take into consideration domestic violence. And there is this belief, and some of them you'll find that, 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 you know, you can't move them off of it. And then you got CAS involved saying it's a bona fide, they step in, review the complainant's evidence and say, no, this is a bona fide child abuse. Never mind anything that you know, the, the father or husband might say, it's this cards are stacked against you. That's true. I mean, it's like the family courts, you can just put anything in an affidavit. Oh, yeah. It doesn't have to follow rules of evidence or anything like that. They no, just, you put anything in anything There's no want. repercussions. That's it true. just goes on forever. But that's a perfect example of an anatomy about it. And then, you know, but we see this in many other contexts as well. It's delusional to believe that this doesn't happen for an ulterior motive. But which leads me to this. In defending these cases, some clients are racking their brains, like you said, like, mm-hmm. why? Well, if you can't answer that why, how successful will you be in your defense? Not that good. It's important that we don't have an obligation to provide motive, but if, if there's no motive at all that, that's apparent. Uh, Common sense requires a motive. It, it, leaves, it, it leaves the trier of fact wondering that exact right. question, whether or not they're supposed to. Yeah. Yeah. They're people. I mean, you know, it, 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 I think it's human nature. Yeah. And, you know, you have to really work very hard and work with your client and dig with your client to determine what are the dynamics at play here? What else can you tell us about? You know, oh, f- there's so much to talk about. Like, there's another case we're about to get a withdrawal on, which was like this most salacious, like, case where... Um, the client liked to be a sugar daddy. It was part of his thing. And two girls come I like over. How you they start get, whispering when you start They get talking. money and they go shopping online and everything. And he was like, supposed to be like sex offender number one. It's going to get withdrawn because finally we tried to hunt down one of the people who wasn't actually complaining with a private investigator. Wound up having to go to the police because they didn't want to speak to the private investigator. And lo and behold, guess what? It was consensual. Imagine. <laughs> but no, but just think if that, that witness did not finally feel the pressure to come forward to tell the truth, what would happen? Like, it's a f-ing delusion to believe that people don't lie about this. 
and I don't know what we have to do to drill it through other people's heads. Mm -hmm. I just don't want this to become an industry. There's nothing wrong with saying there's legitimate claims, there's illegitimate claims. That's what the courts are for. We're going to decide it, but we're not going to prejudge anything. Mm -hmm. I just don't know what's so hard about that. Well, okay, so when we're trying to sort out motive, I think in terms of the anatomy of a false allegation and how we break it down, I think that's kind of an interesting thing to look at. One, we always say, do not give a police statement until you've got disclosure, at least, and then we can try to... Maybe what happens? That's stuff. a very good point. How bad is it for an accused when they're arrested to give a statement? How bad is that? Oh, it's bad. <laughs> the biggest reason is because... You know, they don't precisely know what they're accused of. Right. So they're going to go in there and start spouting off, making assumptions, and then they'll be like, well, how did you manage to guess that? Right? Right. Or things like that. Like, uh, there's a lot of stuff that, like, they can be absolutely innocent, but end up saying some stupid stuff because, one, they're in shock. They just got arrested. And they feel two, they must be guilty of something, right, if they've been arrested. They haven't thought through it at all. No, they haven't. But, but then also, they don't necessarily, like, they, they might be given a summary of what they're charged with, but they don't precisely know what they're accused of. So they could end up talking about something completely different. And, you know, it's... Um, giving a statement to police... The disclosure is very important. Right. You're right. And giving a statement to police when you're charged with a sexual assault allegation is 97% of the time the worst thing you could do. There are some occasions where somebody actually is coherent enough and they're able to go in and go, this is bullshit, here's what happened. Mm -hmm. Rare, very rare. And sometimes that happens. Yeah. But I would say 97% of the time, it's going to be incoherent. It's not going to be helpful because you're in shock. You can't believe this is happening. The police are telling you certain things. And you, whatever you, 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 you blab out, you can't take back. If you've been giving your rights to counsel appropriately, you're f***ed. Right. Here's what I know Michael can handle. So what's the difference between a police summary of a complainant statement and the actual transcript? Imagine. <laughs> one's verbatim, one's not. Well, and, and sometimes we see in the summaries creative writing. Right. And when you, you, you need to get the statements verbatim, that's why we have them transcribed. Every time. But you can't, but you know, device, don't give a statement. Don't give a statement. Just as don't much talk. As, as much as you may want to have your side, the best police officers I see, bar none, is when they say, don't give us a statement. You have right. a right not to give us a statement. It's Don't give us a statement. Yeah. It's not going to help you. Just get charged, get released, and speak with a lawyer. Love those police officers. They're the best. And I'm talking about the complaint statement because we see these police summaries where they, you know what I've noticed is that um, there are times when the complainant will start going off on some sort of weird tangent mm -hmm. or whatever, never makes it in the police summary. Right. right. And the reason is because they can't understand what's being said. If something doesn't make sense to them, they don't put it in the summary. Well, they try summarizing nonsense. Try summarizing, yeah, try right, summarizing right. nonsense. It's hard. <clears throat> but once we know the background and once we've been able to talk to the client, yeah. that uh, we can actually understand what it is they're rambling about and, and that becomes the gold. Usually the stuff that's helpful to defense, I find isn't actually anywhere near mm -hmm. the police summary because that's the first thing you get right. is just a summary of what the allegations were. Right. And then you know the, the fact that they laid the charges or whatever. But the transcript is so important. I, I have a case now. It's, a, it's going to be 11 months. I'm waiting for the statement. And the Crown and, and a judge on a judicial brief trial said, well, you've got the summary. I'm like, <laughs> I don't well, think so. I, yeah. No, 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 that's not. I'm not going to trial on a, summary. on a sexual assault case where I have to bring a 276 application on, on a summary. Yeah. I want the f***ing statement so I can transcribe it and have it verbatim. I'm not going to go any further. I've done everything I can to help you move this case forward, but give me the video. It's vital, but don't give a statement to police. Just don't.
It's my free legal advice. One Th of the this things, time only. <clears throat> one of the things that we often have clients uh, say right off the top is, I don't understand how it could be charged because there's no evidence. Oh, oh yeah, I God, love that. I just, like, I and I know that. we've said this a bunch of times, but you know. <laughs> it's not just that. It, it's, it's, you know, how can I be charged? I didn't do anything wrong. Right. Why is it going to cost me so much? I didn't do anything wrong. Right. Well, look, uh, if you want to have a short way of doing it and, and not pay a lot of money, knock yourself out. We've seen, we have those appeals. Yes. Right. <laughs> you know, these are not, these are not simple cases. They have to be analyzed. It takes time. Don't think because you think you're innocent that this is going to be a walk in the park. What about corroboration? Because people bring this up all the time. There's no corroboration. There should be corroboration. This is why they say there's no evidence. That's right. Think Just her. They don't understand that somebody's testimony is evidence. And so it's the quality of the testimony too, which is why it's important to watch the videos as well mm -hmm. as just read the transcripts so that you get a, a sense of, you know, why did the police believe this? Uh, you know, because sometimes the statements are kind of lunatic. Right. Uh, but then when you watch the videos, like there's a certain amount of crying going on mm -hmm. or this or that. There can be a lot of reasons for the crying that have yeah. nothing to do with an actual assault. Right. Right. And then that becomes the challenge. I mean, it's, I just don't think people understand the, the level of knowledge and experience and art that's required to really properly advocate for, for the accused in cases of sexual assault. No, no, no there, there's yeah. like, it, no. It, it's, it's like, the, the, the sad thing is in the last, what, four months, five months, we have two appeals or three appeals mm -hmm. where, where people were just bamboozled and, and they went into it exactly with this, with this way. I'd want to be seen as denigrating to other counsel. He says in a whisper. But, you know, it was all the same thing. I didn't do anything wrong. I didn't do this, so it should be easy. And it's not. And in or, two of those cases... Or I decided not to testify because... In two of those cases, they didn't yeah. testify. It's just mind-boggling. And, and, and if it was somebody like us saying in the initial meeting, no, no, you're going to testify. Right. There's no way you can't testify. Right. But we have to get beyond this delusion also, if I can put it that way, that this is simple. Mm -hmm. that, that the truth will set you free. No, it won't. It has to be handled properly. Yeah, well, I'm sad to say through my... Nonprofit. I've seen a lot of innocent men get convicted. Well, we'll talk about that a little bit more now because you have the non-for-profit and it's just, you know, you know, they talk about how, you know, conviction rates are, are so poor. Well, no, there's a, there's a lot of convictions. Yeah, I'm, I mostly focus on appeals now because it's, uh, it's, it's too difficult to work with lawyers I'm not familiar with and so on. And they're a little bit sketchy about it. But, uh, but, I, but I tend to focus more on appeals now. So it's... It's unbelievable, and you've seen me sort of in a, an emotional state a number of times because of losing an appeal, and and um, and sometimes the appeals are incredibly well written. It's just so incredibly difficult to win on an appeal now because of it Supreme is. Court's dedication to making things better for and complainants. The to and there's a lot of deference. Lot of deference. They're presumed to know the the, the law. Their their credibility assessments, which, which comes back to again. Uh, again, we've said this before, but we have to try and get this across. I wish more people who potentially who are charged would watch the video. The evidence of a complainant testifying orally in court is enough to get a conviction. Yeah. And a lot of the time, that's all the evidence is. Yeah. That's in domestic violence cases, sexual assault cases. That's all that's there. And that is enough. Mm -hmm. And it's not just simply enough to say that's not true or to find minimal inconsistencies in their evidence 
well, but they, she said this happened on a Tuesday and it actually, you know, we met on a Wednesday. That doesn't do it. Mm-hmm. You know, it's, it is not simple. In Canada, there's good reasons and in Commonwealth countries and, in, you know, why you don't need corroboration because there are people who do suffer in silence. These things happen behind closed doors. They would never be able to come forward with the abuse if you needed corroboration. So corroboration is a non-starter. It's not going to be a requirement. You can say there's lack of independent evidence. You can say that certain things that the complainant describes would have resulted in the following. That doesn't exist here. Mm-hmm. Right? So I can say there's no corroboration, but the complainant put forward pictures. I can, I can refute those pictures and therefore take away the credibility. There's ways to do that. There's ways to undermine the evidence. But that means you have to know what you're doing and have litigated these cases. Mm-hmm. Sounds a bit like an infomercial. I'm it sorry. Really it's does. Not, it's it's not. It's, it's, it's because we've got some appeals in here now where it's like, f- these convictions, like... Mm. I don't think we even have a 1-800 number to scroll, do we, Max? Don't, no, no we, we don't. don't. No, we don't. That's not the point of these it's videos. Not. <laughs> you know, we're trying to just Absolutely get a message not. out there, you know? But just sort of a random thought. for Like, don't give a statement when you're arrested. Imagine. Something you said kind of brought this to mind. Is I really wish that advocacy groups for real victims <laughs> would get more upset when somebody's shown to have lied. You know, I, I agree with you. It undermines, mm-hmm. you know, it undermines the, the faith and the hashtag believe mm-hmm. concept that they keep trying to push. And... And it, and it really surprises me. I have heard from a number of women who have expressed, you know, and it is primarily women who who will talk about this, that uh, that they've experienced an assault and they're infuriated when somebody's exposed to have lied about it. And, and I think that's a valid emotion to have. And I think it's important to yeah, to talk about. It, yeah. Well, because, you know, th- they have a ba- on balance that, you know, bad things do happen, but trying to get recognition about this type of violence is undermined by false accusations. And I think that's where we need more balance in the system where people who are advocates for this will come out and say, you know, this undermines what we're trying to achieve here. Right. But um, there's another thing too that that causes problems for people who are both accused and complainants. And that is that quite often a lot of these allegations take place when there's alcohol involved Mm -hmm. in an evening and alcohol affects memory. And yeah, and then you t- then you give a statement to police going, I don't remember. Mm-hmm. I, I I had a lot to drink that night. Right. Yeah. <laughs> Goodbye defense. I know because how are they going to ever testify in their own defense right. if they've literally admitted they have no memory? And and you know if you're arrested within 24 hours, legitimately, you may not remember right there, no. but but after some time has passed and you start to piece it together after the shock is wearing off and you're reading the statement, you know certain things will come back to you. Sure. Don't box yourself in automatically and just give it up to say, no, I, I don't remember. And then you're stuck with that. But then we have issues as well with um, complainants who say that they've gone into a, you know, there's a difference between being uh, completely passed out mm-hmm. and being in a blackout condition mm-hmm. where you may appear to be functioning properly and you're making decisions, but you have a blackout as to what it was you were doing. And sometimes complainants have been shocked because there happened to be video from a bar they were in. where it was like, wow, I can't believe I did that. But without that independent evidence, quite often what we see is that they're allowed to testify about what they would have done. Right. Mm-hmm. And that gets complicated too, I think. I would never have consented. Right. Mm-hmm. I know I wouldn't have because... It's not something I would do. Yeah, I've, I've never done this in the past or whatever. It's like, yeah, but what would you do when you're intoxicated? But I think the courts are attuned to that now as being a myth or that's a stereotype, which is not that applicable. But it does seep in quite a bit. Yeah. And, and you know... The, you talk about capacity because 
a blackout just simply means somebody's intoxicated to the point where they have a memory gap. But that doesn't mean that they're not functional or capable of giving consent. And was it the Court of Appeal? What's the decision the, it's from a couple of years ago now that, that sort of fine-tuned the capacity argument? We'll find it for the next episode. Yeah. But there has to be some consciousness and awareness of the consequences of what you're engaging in, what you're doing. So it's not just simply walking, talking, and being able to answer questions. But it's not that much higher, frankly. But you really do need some independent evidence, if you're in a case like that, of what the condition of the complainant is when they're saying, I don't remember because I had too much alcohol, ergo, I didn't have the capacity to consent, and you need to establish, no, you, the person was absolutely functional, absolutely making decisions, was absolutely aware of what they were doing. But how difficult you could be in a situation if an accused gives evidence to say, I also was drinking, I really don't remember, and you have no other evidence. That's a problem. Think about that. That's an that's an anatomy also for a wrongful conviction because both may be f-ing wrong, right? But what do we see though is that when a if you have a female and male, um, you know, in, engaged in, in the allegation and the male accused, that when a woman becomes intoxicated, she becomes less responsible for decisions, but a male becomes double responsible. Hundred percent right. They're supposed to recognize that the woman's in, too intoxicated, mm-hmm. while they're also intoxicated, making poor decisions and not perceiving things properly. And, and I still, I still think that that's a major problem. And 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 that's that's a myth promulgated by the other side. It says, well, if 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 somebody's drinking, a female, if a female's drinking, she can't consent. Right. Which is absolutely not true. Mm-hmm. I, you know, I want to revisit that in another episode. I want to come back to the. Capacity I want to remember issue. what that case is you asked me about because now right. it's in the back of my head. I'm going, I should know it. Like, well, that. we haven't argued a capacity case in a in a, in a little while, but I, I think I want to come back to it because that's a perfect example of if you go too far on that argument in the courts, if, 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 if there's too much place to establish capacity, that absolutely can be one of the most dangerous foundations upon which wrongful convictions can happen. Must be very careful. You know, it was such an elegant way put before where it said a drunken consent is still consent. And they took, you know, great umbrage to that language. And then the courts had to react to it. They go, well, you know, it's not the best way of saying it, but this is what it means. And therefore, but there has to be a consciousness and an understanding of what you're engaging into. You know, I think we should revisit that because if we go along and the narrative gets pushed more and more and more that if you're drinking, you know, you have no agency anymore and it puts the onus on the accused, we could be down a very dangerous path. Mm hmm. Yeah. And then, of course, uh, unfortunately, I couldn't be here for this episode. But another serious problem when you're going to court is when you're dealing with a complainant who's come to believe something, they have a false memory. Oh, yeah. So they're testifying. You'll be here for We're going to bring them back. Yeah. Oh, yeah. They'll but, be back. Yeah. Uh, but uh, I think that's important to recognize, too, that sometimes these complainants aren't lying. They actually believe something to be true, even though it may not actually be true at all. That's the problem where you can have influence from other third parties. Friends who tell you that what happened to you was was wrong. Investigators. Investigators, therapists. But also, you know, I think what, what's important is the, the idea that there was a memory that was, com- an event happened, you know it happened, and then it was pushed out of your mind for a long period of time, and then all of a sudden something triggered it. We must get away from that being legitimate. That's not legitimate. Nope. You know, our last guest was pretty clear and said, you know, I, you know, these are not measurable things that you have normally in science, but what, what, what based upon their expertise and study is that people do remember traumatic events. They don't go away. They don't go away. You may not choose to think about it, Mm -hmm. 
but the memory's there. It's not that it's completely absent. What's that line from that case we did in Barry? When your memory is like a chalkboard? chalkboard. That can be erased and rewritten at will, then you should be highly suspicious. Yeah. Let's yeah. end on that one. Yeah, I like that. Where's your clean? Good night. Good night. Uh, no pillow was uh, harmed, harmed during in the this filming of this filming podcast. Of this but at the same time, don't forget to like, comment, subscribe, and share. Good night, everybody. Good night. And keep sending in those emails and questions, and thank you for your viewership. Good night, everybody.